You may be seated. Before we get back to Luke's gospel, we're going to take one more interlude to talk about something today. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to John's first letter, way in the back of your Bible, chapter 2, or the text is printed in your bulletin there on page 10. John, of course, one of Jesus' disciples, writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we pray now that your spirit will move with the word so it will not just roll off us, but will sink down into our hearts and bear fruit. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. So if you'd asked me when I was a youth, Ben, do you know how to throw a baseball? I would have probably looked at you like you were very, very stupid. <laughs> Who doesn't know how to throw a baseball? It's very easy. And then one day, through a very, very strange set of circumstances, I got to spend some hours with a professional pitching coach. I mean, the kind of person who prepares people for the major leagues. And I discovered I didn't know how to throw a baseball. <laughs> In fact, there, was, there were things about throwing a baseball I wasn't even aware, just dimensions. I mean, my whole view of throwing the baseball was completely transformed. I was very familiar with the idea of throwing a baseball, but suddenly I understood the mechanics in a whole new way. And I think that is true of so many things in life, if you think about it. Lots of stuff is very familiar to us. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. We don't always understand it all that well. And that's true in the Bible, too. You know, we're preaching through Luke's gospel, but I don't, as I've said, I don't want to race through the Bible past things that we've heard many times and are very familiar and not understand them. So last week, or last time, we talked about demons, making sure we understand what that's about in the gospel. And this week, I want to ask you guys another question. What is a disciple? Do you know what a disciple is? We read about disciples. What's a disciple? Do you know how to be one? Are you being one? Do you know how to make a disciple? kind of important, you know, Jesus said that is the commission of the church, make disciples. You know how to make a disciple? What is discipleship, the business of being and making disciples? I wish we could take about 30 minutes right now and I could just hear from you and see, you know, a pretest, as it were. I want to begin thinking about this by thinking about the workshop that Jesus opened. The workshop that Jesus opened. That metaphor will make a little more sense, I hope, in a minute. I want to think about that startling image 
early in the Gospels of people walking away from everything to follow Jesus. You're not going back to your job Monday morning. In some cases, you're not even going back to your wife and kids or your whatever, family, your friends, your hobbies. You're, you're not, they just walk away. And I want to think about why on earth would they do that? And I'd like you to notice something that just happened inside of some of you when I asked that question. Some of you started to get kind of nervous. And I think we do get a little bit worried when we look at that kind of crazy image of people just leaving their lives and following Jesus. And I think down in our hearts, this kind of worries us because there's this sort of nagging thing like, is that, could Jesus ever ask that of you? Or me? I mean, well, let's not worry about us right now. Let's just think about them and focus on what happens. So it's interesting to notice for these people who followed Jesus, they left without apparently any concern at all for what they were leaving behind. And in fact, when some of them raised objections, like, oh, Jesus, I got some business I need to take care of before I follow you, he said, fine, you can't be my disciple. But for the actual disciples who became disciples, they didn't even look back. It's almost like that life didn't exist for them anymore. You know, if I've asked myself, what would it take for someone to show up on my front porch and say, come with me, and you're never going to be a part of this life ever again? What would it take for me to actually do that? I think they'd have to cast a spell on me. Why would people do that, beloved? Why would they just walk away? And, and like the stuff that left, left behind, it, it didn't even matter to them. And the only answer to that can be because of what they saw before them. Somehow they had grasped what they were walking into in a way they didn't even want to look back. They actually didn't want to go back. And that, I think, is one of those things we've read it many times, and I think it is just hard to understand why. Now, most of us are Gentiles. And Gentiles tend to see the world as a succession of things, you know, one darn thing after another. That's kind of how we view the world in history. And it can be very hard for us to know what it would have been like for these Jews in Jesus' time who had been waiting, and waiting is too weak a term, I mean, aching for millennia for a very particular thing to begin. I mean, just longing for it. Please, God. Let it be. Let it come. And these Jews, some of them, as they're watching Jesus work and they're listening to him, it dawns on them, maybe dimly at first, but very really and powerfully, <laughs> oh my, it is happening now. This is it. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is God's rule coming to earth. It's, it's finally here. And as they watched this person at work, it just, that sense just grew and grew. Th this is it. I'd like you to notice how John describes it in verse 8 of the text we just read. Have your text in front of you. John, because he was one of these who walked away, he describes this as the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's what this was for them. 
Can I ask you guys, have you ever heard the phrase, darkness that can be felt? Have you guys ever been in darkness that you can feel? Where you almost struggle to breathe, it's like it's just seeping into you. Well, for the, those who are following Jesus, they understood that's the kind of suffocating, stifling darkness that has for ages covered the earth. The only place where there's light is in Israel. Everything else is just blanketed by darkness. And now they are seeing this brilliant gleam coming over the horizon. They are looking at a dawn happening right in front of them. And, and they know, because they know their Bibles, they know that this dawn is only going to shine brighter and brighter until its morning glory just fills all of creation. Now, for the Jews, beloved, who's the light? Who brings the dawn? Well, the Jews understood that God is light. He's not f- like literal, physical light, but that's how he's pictured. God is without shadow. God's communicative, outgoing, dare I say, friendly presence He wants to disclose himself to us. That radiant presence of God, that is the glorious source the Jews understood of all life and all love. When you are near, like things near the sun, they thrive and they thrive together in harmony. They they thought of God as, as in, in, in a way that was a metaphor that could somehow help us understand. When you are near God, you thrive. It's like living in the sunlight instead of in deadly darkness. You, you thrive not only individually, but you thrive together. God speaks, and there is light, and there is life, and there is love. God is light, and they knew. The nations are far from God. They don't acknowledge him, don't worship him, don't give thanks to him. They are in outer darkness, but what's interesting to think about is even in Israel, where was God's light? You know this well. Where was God's light in Israel? It was always obscured, wasn't it? The light was always behind clouds, always behind curtains. It was always veiled where you could not have direct access to it. And John says, we have come to realize that is no longer the case. In this Jesus, God has stepped from behind the curtains, from behind the veil into creation. He has has made his light visible. As Paul will say, or John will say in his gospel, we beheld the glory of God, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, radiant with grace and truth. And Paul will say, God has given to us the light of the knowledge of his glory, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The the, the darkness is passing away because God has stepped into creation in Jesus, the unapproachable light has come to us to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. And John and the other disciples understood as they looked at this Jesus that this just has massive implications. For example, it means there are no more fig leaves. No more fig leaves. There is nowhere to hide. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they, would not, they, they could hide their sin. They have no excuse for their sin now. The light of God comes and it pierces the darkness we want to hide in. It just shreds the fig leaves we want to hide behind. 
We are exposed. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says we are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The psalmist says you have placed our sins in the light of your countenance. No more hiding. No more excuses. You try to present yourself as one little bit better than you actually are. You are lying. John says this in a couple of verses earlier. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar too. You're not only lying to yourself, you are calling God a liar. That's what the light does. It just strips away the fig leaves. You are not a good person. Your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, even you don't know it. And the light just blasts in, as it were, and just, there's nowhere to hide. The searching gaze of God himself, where are you going to run? Well, that's a little scary. There's also no more animal skins. Okay, we know fig leaves won't do it. The Gentiles reach for fig leaves. Where did the Jew, what did the Jews reach for? Well, they weren't going to reach for fig leaves. They were reaching for what? They're reaching for the sacrifices. That's where we can hide. The other ways that God set Israel apart from the nations. Well, we're okay because circumcision. We're okay because the dietary laws. We're okay because we keep the feasts and the festival days and so on. And John and Paul will be even stronger about this this is shocking to the Jewish mind of that time. All of that's darkness now, too. Because if you think about that old system of the sacrifices and the curtains and the circumcision and the, the Sabbath and feast days, that whole system that God gave to Moses, it separated Israel not just from those evil Gentile nations, those sinners in darkness, those walls separated Israel from God, too, didn't they? The curtain, the veil, separated Israel from God. Those animal sacrifices could never take away sins, and the veil never opened. But John says, I got news for you. All of that is now darkness. Here's the light that has shined. Not just God's piercing gaze that sees all. He says, I want you to know something that you know well. Verse 1 of chapter 2, we now have an advocate with the Father. We have a priest who has entered into the light. And he is, verse 2, the propitiation for our sins. That's one of those big words in the Bible that actually has a very simple and beautiful meaning. It means that God, who is righteously, justly, wrathful against our sins, whose curse sticks because it's a holy and it's a good curse. It's a curse that comes from loving the good and hating evil. That curse, that wrath, has been turned into a smile of welcome and grace and favor because that curse has been exhausted in Jesus. He has paid that debt. He has absorbed that wrath in himself because God sent him to bear that for us. And now that curtain, that veil has been torn and God's light now wreathed in favor. It is rushing forth to fellowship with a people who are pure in his sight. You have a priest, and you have the perfect propitiation, the perfect sacrifice for your sins. And not just in Israel, he's a propitiation, not just for our sins in Israel, he's a propitiation for sinners across the world. No more animal skins. And so, no more fig leaves, no more animal skins, also no more walls. Because he's the light of the world, this Jesus. All flesh shall see the salvation of our God. So we come into the light and the curtain is torn and we're suddenly face to face with 
a holy God who is the light who would just consume us if we were not covered by this propitiation of Jesus and we didn't have an advocate, but now we're his children and it's all good and we're here and we're his and we look around and there's no wall between us and God, but you know what? There's also no walls between us and we start looking around and we find ourselves in the light with all those other people in the light and we are told we must love them because we're all in the light. No more Jew and Gentile. Those walls are gone. In fact, a good case, I think, can be made when you look at verses 9 through 11 about this person who hates the brother, doesn't love the brother, I think a good case can be made. That is not talking necessarily first about unloving Christians so much as what we know from the New Testament as Judaizers. There were people who rejected Christians because they failed to take up the old ways of Judaism. In following Jesus, they did not also become Jews and get circumcised and keep all of these Old Testament regulations that were for Israel before Jesus. And so they hated Christians. They rejected Gentiles. They would not fellowship with Gentiles because they weren't becoming Jews. No more walls. And to be a disciple, then, is to enter the workshop of this new world that Jesus opened. John calls it the light. We are walking in the light. And guided by the master, Jesus himself, what we're doing here is we are apprenticing. I get that from Dallas Willard. I love that description. That's another good word for disciple. We are apprenticing in this workshop of the light. We are practicing walking with the father now, the father of lights. He's our father. You got to practice that. And we are practicing, as apprentices, walking with our brethren in the light. That's the workshop Jesus opened. It's an amazing thing. Now I want us to think for a minute. So here we are in the workshop, the light. Would have been terrifying, except for the fact we have a propitiation, we have an advocate, and we have each other, and here we are. Now I want to think about the way of our apprenticeship, the way. The core of it is in verse 6. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way, the same way in which Jesus walked. You walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, can I ask you guys a question? And please don't be quick to answer this. It is foolish to answer deep questions quickly. Are you supposed to be like Jesus? Are you supposed to be like Jesus? Dallas Willard says something very sobering. If you're not planning to be like Jesus, you're planning to to not be like Jesus. If you are not planning, and I mean focused, thinking it through, making a plan, if you're not planning to be like Jesus, you are planning not to be like Jesus. Does that make sense? If I'm not planning to get a certain job, I'm planning not to get that job. And John says explicitly here, we we need to start planning to be like Jesus because to be a disciple means we're walking as Jesus walked. We are living as Jesus did. did. And and how, how do we do that? Well, John says it's actually, conceptually, it's fairly simple. We become like Jesus. We live like Jesus by keeping his commandments. He says in verse three, We know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. That's how you walk like Jesus. You keep his commandments. And actually, in Matthew 28, we're told that's what disciples do. Teach them, baptize the the nations, and teach them what? To, To keep, to observe, to obey all my commandments. That is what it means to live in the light. Jesus 
gives commandments, and we are obedient, and that is how we become like the master. As we practice his commandments, we become like the master. Now, there are instantly are objections to this, and, you know, I, I can imagine, because they come up in my heart. One is that I'm going to fail at that, obviously, and I'm going to be condemned. <laughs> I mean, that's just a heavy thing. Ben, be like Jesus. I know I'm not going to be able to be like Jesus. I do break his commandments. That means I'm going to be condemned. John says, nope, because you have an advocate and you have a propitiation. Y'all need to calm down. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So uh, if that's how you're thinking, you are not, you're not, you actually, that in, that in its own way is not paying attention to Jesus because he says he's your advocate. He's your propitiation. He's your righteousness. You're, you're fine. No condemnation. You will fail, but you're not condemned. Well, then, Ben, I just think about being like Jesus. I just know I can't. I can't. That's silly. Well, John says in verse 8, he says, this commandment I'm writing to you, here's the thing. It's true in him, and that's why it'll be true in you. (laughs) It's true in him, that's why it'll be true in you. Because Jesus kept the Father's commandments, because Jesus became the full humanity that God wants us to be, you are going to become that because you're in him. What is true of Jesus is worked out in you because you're members of his body. So that's the hope. We can become like Jesus because Jesus works in us. What is true in him by his spirit becomes true in us. And it's also the case that we tend very much to think of our apprenticeship in Jesus' commandments as pass-fail, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, you're out, rather than practice and growth. I seek to keep the commandments of Jesus, seek to walk before the Father as he did, seek to walk toward the brethren as he did, and I find I'm failing, but I'm practicing and I'm growing. It's not pass or fail. I couldn't ride a bike once. (laughs) Now I can. How? Practice. That's what it means to keep Christ's commandments. You are practicing. There's another objection, though, and that is, okay, I might not be condemned, but I'm going to fail. And John explicitly says here, I'm going to show that I'm a fraud because he says, by this we know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commandments. So what that means, Ben, is if I don't keep his commandments, if I fail and keep his, his commandments, I'm just proving that I don't actually know him. I will, I'll be proven to be a fraud. And that's how we tend to read texts like this, I think. We tend to read them as demanding proof of authenticity. Prove you're a real Christian. Let me look into your life and see how you're obeying Jesus' commandments. I want to see proof of authenticity. And then, of course, what happens? We start panicking when we realize we are falling short in obeying. Maybe I'm not a real Christian. Maybe I'm a false. Maybe I'm false. Think about what John's doing here. First, as I've already hinted, he's not so much in any way distinguishing apprentices of Jesus who have obeyed enough. They've kind of met their obedience quota from these other apprentices over here who they haven't kind of met the obedience quota. They're, they're probably wolves in sheep's clothing, actually, because they're, they're just so weak and deficient. That's, that's not what he's doing. He, the main thing he seems like he's doing in this letter is he's distinguishing those who are in Jesus' workshop practicing his commandments practicing especially as Jews this crazy thing of coming to God boldly through Jesus alone I mean believing in him and relating to God as father with him as your only priest and him as your only sacrifice and then practicing relating not just with fellow Jews who are all circumcised and you know keeping the dietary laws and look you know like Jews and act like Jews but learning to relate to all these Gentiles this you know but they're in the workshop they are practicing keeping the commandments of Jesus he's distinguishing those from other people who want nothing to do with that workshop 
They don't want to come to God through Jesus alone. They don't want to live in the light with him as their only priest, him as their only sacrifice. They surely don't want to love all of these brethren who are the unwashed masses. But we know that we've come to know Jesus if we are in the workshop keeping his commandments. And I want you to notice something else. He does not say, by this we prove that we know him. He doesn't say, by this we provide authentic proof that we are in him. You know, I've been obeyed enough this week, so I'm pretty sure Ben can say, I know Jesus. That's not what he's actually saying. What does he say? He says, by this we know that we know him. And in the Bible, Peter Lightheart points this out, and it's, it's very helpful. In the Bible, knowing is knowing relationally. Adam knew his wife. By this, we relationally know that we relationally know Jesus if we are keeping his commandments. This kind of knowing, it's not piling up data. It's not even piling up evidence. Like, whew, I can... I'm, I'm all good this week. I've obeyed the commands. It's not piling up evidence. This knowing that John is talking about, it is knowing in the context of deep relating with someone. When I do premarriage counseling, the first session and the first question that I ask is, I ask the man and the woman both, how do you know you love this person? How do you know that you love this person? And I'm not asking them to prove anything. (laughs) Although it's amazing, they always get nervous. (laughs) Because it, it, they think I'm trying to somehow like, you know, are you really the real thing? That's not what I'm after at all. What I'm asking is, how do you know you love this person? I'm asking them to tell me how they experience relationally loving and knowing that they love this person. Talk to me about it. And once they get past it, oh, on, I'm, this is a test. I've got to prove something. They realize, they start talking. And what they usually say is this. They say, you know how I know I love this person? You know how I know I know this person in that intimate way? Because something wonderful happens between us. There's just this delight. There's this commitment. There's this safety. There's this joy. So if I ask you, how do you know you love Jesus? How do you know that you know Jesus? What am I asking? What is John after here? I hope the answer would be the answer of an apprentice. You would say, you know, Ben, something happens between me and Jesus in his workshop. Because day by day in my life, I'm sometimes a very bad apprentice, but I'm an apprentice, and as I'm studying Jesus' commandments, how to relate to God through him, how to relate to my neighbor in him, and I'm practicing. That's what it means to keep. I'm keeping his word before me. I'm keeping his word of grace, that he is sufficient. I have peace with God through him, and I'm keeping his law of love, that God wants me to love him, and to enjoy him, and to love people because I'm so well loved, and I'm, I'm practicing, and I'm studying, and I'm working this out as I keep his word in front of me every day. I am learning in the workshop how to live as a child of God, and a brother or a sister 
to the people of God, and I'm finding, as John says here in verse 5, that as I keep his word, the love of God is being matured in me. It's just something, something that, you know, things happen. Some days it's hard. Some days I, I crawl out of the workshop at the end of the day because it's just been a very hard training session. Some days my heart is full of just God's doing good things here, but the reality is, I, this is this is what happens between me and Jesus in the workshop. If that is completely foreign to you, if that is completely alien to you or to me, then obviously we're a liar to say I know Jesus because that is what it is to live with Jesus. And so we're back to walking as he walked. It is what God intends for us. And I'd like you to notice that the aim in verse 1, the aim of walking like Jesus walked is to be so busy walking with him and walking like him in the light, so busy walking with God as your father and with the brethren that you don't sin. John says, I'm actually writing to you so you will not sin. Now, if we sin, there's no fear because he's our advocate. He's our propitiation. We have peace with God. But my, the aim of walking like Jesus is that you would not sin. But in practice, what is that? What is this Jesus walk? Let me give you a few very practical things, and then we'll be done. And I want you just to just have to think about, this is the will of God for you, beloved. You are to be like Jesus. In fact, you are not to sin. And this is what it looks like. How did Jesus walk? Practically, what is it to walk like Jesus? Well, for one thing, he's enjoying peace with God. Jesus enjoyed peace with his Father. That's walking like Jesus. Jesus said to you, I'd like you to pray this way, our Father. Our Father. Guess who's part of that? Jesus. Pray with me, my brother. Pray with me, my sister. Our Father because you're right here with me, with the Father. And Jesus enjoyed it. That's part of being his disciple. We practice, we apprentice, enjoying God the Father like Jesus. Another thing, the Jesus walk is showing God's goodness. Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus said, how long have I been with you, Philip? You don't realize I am showing you the Father. That's what I'm here to do, to show you God, to show you God's goodness. Can I ask, any of you who are in this room between the age of 13 and 35, this is true for the older ones too, but you younger ones, I want you to please listen to me for just a second here especially. This is your life focus. I don't know what God specifically will call you to do for a job. This is what your life is about, to show people the Father, to show people the goodness of God. Day by day to say, as you meet people, whether they are intimate family members and friends or just random strangers you encounter on the street, I want this person to know the Father through me. I want this person to taste through me something of the generosity, the mercy, the kindness, the patience, the truth, the goodwill of God the Father. Do you know what this is called? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. And I look at kids and I look at adults who can spout that to me and they, I, I, it's obvious, like, do you know what that means? It means to show the glory of God. That's all it means. It means to show the goodness of God. That's, that's the focus of Jesus. That's the focus of his disciples. It is the total opposite of spending your life choosing all the stuff that you imagine will make you happy and then trying to make everything in your life conform to that imagination of what will make you happy. God has pulled you out of that suffocating self-centeredness. Your life is about showing God's goodness. But what that means, thirdly, is the Jesus walk, showing God's goodness, 
by skillfully doing good. Jesus, the Bible tells us, went about doing good. He showed God's goodness by doing good. And apprenticing under Jesus means I'm looking around in the world where God has placed me, and I'm looking like, where are the needs? Where are the problems? And what can be done about these things with God's grace with us, his wisdom, his power. This includes every lawful calling of the, of the Christian community. And the crucial thing is, as I begin to see the needs and the problems and the opportunities, we need, things need to be done, and they can be done by God's grace. Then the crucial question for me is, how am I going to learn to do these good things that need to be done? Dallas Willard again, he says, we have to come to terms with the fact that we cannot become those who hear and do Jesus' commandments without specific training for it. You have to train to be able to skillfully do good. But then he goes on to say something else, and this is very important. He says, training in doing good works, being zealous for good works, but being skilled in doing good works. He says, training may to some extent be self-administered, but more than that will always be needed. It is something that must be made available to us by those already farther down the path. I, I think, beloved, that for apprentices of Jesus, more important than what specific skills I learn to do good, more important even than what skills I learn, maybe from whom am I going to learn these skills and with whom am I going to learn these skills. Willard has a very sobering passage where he says this. He says, you're somebody's disciple. Ben Miller's language, somebody's training you. He says, you learned how to live from somebody else. There are no exceptions to this rule, for human beings are just the kind of creatures that have to learn and keep learning from others how to live. Today, we prefer to think that we are our own person. We make up our own minds, but that is only because we've been mastered by those who taught us that. <laughs> Probably, you're the disciple of several somebodies, and it is very likely that they shaped you in ways that are far from what is best for you or even coherent. It is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us, mastered us, and then evaluate the results in us of their teaching. This is a harrowing task, but it can also open the door to choose other masters and one master above all. Who has mastered you? Whose disciple are you? From whom have you learned life? And we need to open ourselves to learn to the skills of doing good from those who are farther down the path ultimately Jesus himself. And that brings me to the, to the last thing in the Jesus walk. And we could talk about this all day, but enjoying peace with God, showing God's goodness, that's the focus. Skillfully doing good, that's the, the way of it. But we do this with others. And that brings us to the last thing. The Jesus walk is also community practices that allow us to do all this good as Christ's body. Sometimes the weight we feel of doing good is because Jesus isn't just looking at you. He's looking at you as a member of the whole body of Christ. Think about how, for example, something like Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is a way of showing God's goodness to the world. We're not under Pharaoh anymore. We're under a God who gives Sabbath. But have you ever tried to keep Sabbath by yourself? What are you going to do, sit in your house all Sunday by yourself? You need to be a people to keep Sabbath in a way that really shows the goodness of God because you need to celebrate, and you need to rejoice, you need to eat and drink and be together and show the world Sabbath, the Sabbath of God, but you've got to be a people to do that. You've got to be a body to do that. It's the same with prayer. A praying Christian is one thing. A praying church, wow. Same with worship, me and my couch in Jesus. Good for you. This is another thing. 
This shows the glory of God in a whole different way. Family life. You want to really raise your kids, you need a Christian village. You do. I do. Hospitality. Great. Sister so-and-so is hospitable. How about an entire community of hospitality? Gosh, one day an entire city of hospitality. Mercy ministries. You drop some coins for that poor person. What if we did this together? The intellectual work that we need for the kingdom of God. A model of friendship. The body. All kinds of various enterprises for the good of our neighbors both locally and beyond in the wider world. We need communal practices. And beloved, we need to submit ourselves to those. Listen to me. You're not going to like this, some of you. You sometimes need a church to tell you what to do practically, not because they are lords of your conscience, but because if you never submit yourself to something that somebody else has imposed, you're never going to train. Does that make sense? I could sit here all day thinking about what a great tennis player I intend to be. Let me submit myself to Gene Mayer for a few weeks. I don't even know how to spell tennis. Some of you need to be told by your pastor or by a brother or sister in Christ, this is what you need to do, and I'm going to hold you accountable. You say, absolutely, do that for me so I can grow. Because if it's left to me, I won't change. Because I don't want to deep down in a certain way. I need to be pushed. Now, you've got to be careful with that. I'm not talking about anything weird or cultish. But you have to submit to the community or we won't grow. There's so much good to do. Anyway, discipling. Last thing, I'm going to give Willard the last word. And this is sobering again, but I think it's good to hear. He says, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. There's a lot of talk about the problems in the modern church. He says, non-discipleship, that is the elephant in the church. It's not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. And it is an accepted reality. There are churches, dear saints, who actually have accepted the fact their people are not going to be like Jesus. There's not even a plan to change that. Thanks be to God, that is not true at Trinity. And may it never be true at Trinity. So all I can say is farther up and further in, as we keep walking with our beloved master as his apprentices through Luke's gospel. More on this next week. Our Lord, we love you. Father, we love you. And we thank you that we are in the light. And we pray that you will teach us to walk in the light as you are in the light. And bear much fruit for your glory. In Jesus' good name, amen.